everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and this is your co-host, Kevin Toefel. And we have got, I say it, an amazing show for you today. We are going to talk about Amazon's new drop-in feature, adding more context to Google Home, Apple buying an eye-tracking firm, and we're going to do some thought experiments on ransomware. Plus, we've got a new fund for the IoT, and I've got a review, woohoo, of the new Eero routers. Our big sponsor this week is TE Connectivity. You're going to learn more about the Smart Kitchen from them. And then we've got a guest, Daniel Elizade. He's going to explain how to build and manage connected products. So stay tuned. And now a message from another sponsor, Affiliated Monitoring. If you're hunting for a subscription revenue model for your IoT business, you need to hear about Affiliated Monitoring. In response to a trigger from any connected device, Affiliated's professionally trained live agents can follow a protocol and reach out to your customers, their loved ones, and local emergency services. Affiliated works with hundreds of smart home, security, health, and other IoT businesses. Visit affiliated.com slash IoT to read a case study on how they helped a connected car startup turn an idea into a thriving business with a $100 million exit. That's affiliated.com slash IOT. Whew! All right. Let's get into our show this week. Speaking of show, next week, we're going to have the Amazon Echo Show. But in the meantime, we should actually talk because some of the reviews are out. And Mm -hmm. I don't know. I felt like they were like, eh, it's got a Madam A, but the screen Mm -hmm. and design are kind of still funky. It was a mixed bag in the reviews. And it's funny because the hardware itself, people did complain about the design, felt it was chunky, blocky, etc. And it actually brings me back to the very first Kindle device, which was also very angular and odd. You know, I don't know if you remember that, the beige Kindle. Oh, yeah. Well, think about Amazon. Even its website is not like pretty, you know? It's blocky and chunky. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it used to be blockier and chunkier. I mean, I'm just, just, Amazon is not, they are not here to design things. They are here to sell you things in the most efficient and cost-effective way possible. (laughs) That they are. That they are. Again, I did not order one. You did. You should have one, like, probably right after the show. It's going to be delivered. Um, Oh, no. UPS comes to my house at 145 to 545. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, you're getting one. I'm not. You know, I could see, again, from going back to like the original Fire TV that has the cards for Madam A on the screen, there's a benefit to that, especially like for a bedside device and so on. And for people who maybe are not tech savvy and want to keep in touch with family, you know, two of these Echo shows would be would be handy. But I don't know. I will say this. Amazon continues to evolve the whole smart home product line far faster, both hardware and software, than anybody else on the market today. And I give them credit for that. I agree with you. And they're really working hard to say, hey, is this working? Nope, kill it. So they're they're really actually moving very quickly. And I love it. Mm-hmm. Yep. I will say that they've added some features that might make the show work for some people with smart homes. So they've brought in several camera feeds. So the Logitech mm-hmm. cameras and my August doorbell camera actually can feed into the show when I get it. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of things that, you know, might matter to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. R- rather than have, you know, pull out a smartphone and look at the feed or whatever. I mean, it's just easily accessible, you know, if you have the show in your room. Although what I will say, and what I imagine Google will do in response is, you know, the Google Home doesn't need a screen because you can 
Chromecast, use the Chromecast mm-hmm. on your TV. If you have that always on, boom, suddenly now you can just be like, oh, you don't need a device with a dedicated screen. Just send it to your television. Someone's mm-hmm. at the door. Ta-da. I will show them to you there. So I don't know. That's kind of where I see probably Google heading in that direction. There's pros and cons to this. I mean, obviously, if your TV is on watching something, you don't want it to be interrupted with, you know, <laughs> right? someone at the door. You're doing your Oscar night, you know, where everybody's commenting and you just order pizza. You're like, ah! But then again, I mean, it wouldn't be a stretch to see a little picture-in-picture pop-up, you know, programmatically appear as soon as, you know, somebody's at the door. So it doesn't take away from the viewing experience of whatever you were doing beforehand. So AT&T, I remember very clearly, like 15 years ago, showed this for kind of smart home and messaging things as part of, it wasn't their digital life, it was part of UVerse. So oh, wow. yeah, yeah, way back in the day. Mm-hmm. So it, you're right, picture and I always forget about picture and picture. So that could definitely happen. Mm-hmm. We should mention that we talked about the Google Home stuff because Android police did a teardown of the latest app update for the Google Home, and they noticed a couple things. They noticed Bluetooth support, which, woo, that Mm -hmm. means you can pair more devices to this thing, more speakers. Yay! And then you can also set default output devices. So you can actually say, hey, this guy, the Google Home in my living room, I want you to talk to my living room Chromecast, which... As the default. Yes, as the default, which means it's automatically going to go there. So in the the future that we just talked about, you might have to set your defaults, but then boom, that's Mm -hmm. where they're just going to send it. Yeah. Now, Android Police does a lot of Android app teardowns, and some of those things pan out, some of them don't. I mean, the, the code is in there to enable those two features that you just mentioned, but it's not active. Right. And Google did talk about this, though, at their last at IO. IO. Mm-hmm. They taught, I mean, because I was so excited because I was like, everyone else was like, ah, no products. And I was like, oh, Google has a vision <laughs> for context. Because mm-hmm. I'm a super nerd and that's exciting to me. And you. Kevin was writing about context like back in 2012. Yeah, I was. Google now on my wrist. I said I wanted to see it. And lo and behold, we got it. Five years later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Amazon also announced a fun new feature that. I personally wanted like when it launched, so I'm excited mm-hmm. about it's intercoms. And this yeah. this will work on your show, this will work on your dots, this will work on your I don't know if it would work on your taps. Who has a tap? You know what? It actually <laughs> I, I tested it. I have a tap. I have one of each type of echo. It does not show up as an option on my tab. Oh on okay. my tap, rather. Yeah. Okay, so Kevin has we've answered both questions. Kevin has the tap and it does not work on the tap. So there's a couple of ways you could use this. I actually used it from the Madam A app on my phone by going into conversations. And that's where you can see the voice calling that you might have done. You see a history there in your contacts. But at the very top of that screen, there's a blue bar that says drop in. When you tap that, it shows you which Echo devices you can drop in on. I have three right here. If I tap any one of those, that device will actually make a sound like an incoming call. The little ring light will turn green and it now becomes an intercom. So it's an intercom between my phone through the app and that Echo. But I think you can do it without the app as well. Okay, one thing to know before you start dropping in on people and trying to make this work. This is based on the name of your Echo. When you installed it, you had to give it a name. If you gave it a cute fun name, like she who shall not be named, 
you're not going to want to keep that. You're going to probably for the intercom feature, want to keep it as the name of the room that it's in. Mm-hmm. So what you'll do is you'll go to one of your echoes and you'll say, Madam A, drop in on bedroom. And then it will, the light will turn green up there and a chime will sound and poop. You are working. It, you can drop in and you can talk to whomever. You can actually also do it like a formal phone call if you think that someone might be busy. And so then you would say, Madam A, call bedroom. And then what's going to happen is the person actually has to answer you. Mm-hmm. So there's two ways to do it. Drop in is like, I'm here. And the other one is like, oh, they're trying to get my attention. Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk to them. And then you can say, never mind. I, I like both approaches, and, that, and part of the reason is when this was announced, a lot of folks wrote it up as, oh, you you were able to spy on and listen in on people in your house and so on. And they made it sound like they wouldn't know that you're doing this. But it's so far in my usage, it's very clear between a chime and the ring light that you are intercoming, listening, talking, et cetera. So I don't I don't have that concern of a from a privacy standpoint. And I actually, so my husband and I tested this and he was able to walk all the way across the bedroom and I could still hear him just fine. Kevin, hmm. you had a different yeah, experience. Yeah, <laughs> well, I have, my stepdaughter is a low talker. So, mm. um, and she wasn't facing the echo. My, you have to understand, my family does not like to test things with me. <laughs> so they don't put their all into it. So it could have just been that she's a low talker. Uh I don't know. I, I suspect if it worked for you and your husband, I'm sure it's going to work fine for everybody else. Well, you know, I feel like kids' voices have – like the Echo, I'll be honest, has a hard time understanding my daughter sometimes. She's not a low talker, but she is a kid, and mm-hmm. that that is clear. Yeah. So, okay. Let's see. What else do we have? That was so much like, woo, personal assistance, exciting. Oh, <laughs> oh, we've got Apple buying an eye tracking firm. Let's talk That's- about this. That's the report. I mean, you never really know what who Apple has purchased until usually long after the fact, but they use shell companies and so on. So, but the report is that they purchased Sensomotoric, if I'm saying that correctly, which is a German company that's actually been around since 1991. They have developed a range of eye tracking hardware and software through for a lot of verticals, and it sort of makes sense if this is that this might be true because there's been a lot of discussion about Apple getting in on AR VR wearables possibly. Although so far that's all just speculation because at WWDC they were showing AR and VR through AR kit, AR kit, which has been very impressive from what I've people seen so far. Love AR kit. I was mm-hmm. like many of the people who work in VR that I've talked to, they're like, yeah. this is really powerful and it's really easy. And Mm-hmm. Voila, it's already on everybody's phone, or it will eventually be on everybody's phone. With so, iOS 11, right? Yeah. yeah. And so this company makes eye-tracking glasses, and they record people's natural gaze in real time, and they, their sampling rate's up to 120 hertz, which is super fast. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot, you guys. And the benefit here is, if you know where someone's looking, it's a more granular data field for you to actually use. Mm-hmm. So it's it's less jerky. It's more fluid. 
Yeah, I mean, you're getting analytics that you might not think you could get in a sense, but they would be very valuable for a developer to have. These type of analytics are pretty useful. And in fact, it was earlier this month that YouTube was actually showing off uh, video analytics through VR. And of course, you know, being owned by Google Alphabet, that's probably more for ads, I would think, for ad targeting to see what people are looking at as opposed to a developer. But either way, I mean, to, to be able to get this type of granular data on what people are actually looking at is, is going to open up new markets. And possibly confirm that people are ignoring ads. <laughs> mm, that's true. Okay. Let's see. What else do we have? We have a $100 million fund from Trend Micro. This is security a firm. security firm. Yeah. And we don't know a lot about this, but they, they announced it this week. And this is the typical corporate investment strategy. What it looks like is they've got this $100 million to invest, and they're trying to get an understanding of how to think about security in the IoT world. So this looks very strategic for them. But mm-hmm. we, we've had, we've shared some thoughts on security and IoT in the past, haven't we? Oh, gosh, I don't think I <laughs> a day doesn't go by that I don't think about security and IoT. So yeah, this is interesting. I too am looking for a threat model, like a way to think about securing the Internet of Things, which is just completely massive. And mm-hmm. it's really probably, it's more a model of thinking about how to secure so many highly distributed devices that are really relatively dumb, but are going to have very complicated permissioning between them. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. I, however, do not have a hundred million dollars to invest. So you should probably talk to them first, but then you can call me. I could start a $10 fund. Oh yeah, for sure. I could, I could even do a hundred. I mean, Ooh. let's be generous here. We're 10X already. <laughs> so speaking of security, there mm. is a WannaCry variant running around hitting everything. Yeah. Corporations everywhere. And this is a ransomware attack, which is basically where companies are like, they wake up one morning, they get a message and it's like, Hey, you can't access your data because we've got it and we've encrypted it. And if you want the key to unencrypt it, you've got to pay us X number of Bitcoins. It's usually Bitcoins. Uh, So people freak out. This has been ongoing for a while. What I predicted late last year and included in my annual predictions is this is going to be a big deal for IoT, not necessarily for attacking individual consumers, Mm -hmm. but for attacking those companies and saying, hey, if you want your thermostat to work, pay this many Bitcoins. Maybe it would attack consumers. It just feels like well, not very scalable. No, it's not scalable. To me, it's it's the cloud-based IoT service providers that are at risk. And it wouldn't be, hey, do you want your thermostat to work? It would be, do you want your 10 million customers' thermostats to work? Right? So yeah, Kevin, ever the genius thinking about scalability here, came up with a way better attack. A way better attack surface. Yeah, please don't use it. (laughs) Please don't use it. As soon as I read the news about how this new variant, I think it's called Petya, Petya. um, has hit in 64 countries and some of the various companies that it has hit. I mean, um, the major shipping company, Maersk, is that the proper pronunciation? They, They were only able to send out like one of their shipping boats, only one. And then they're like one of the largest shipping providers around the world as a result of being hit by this. Uh, You know, it it got me thinking about, boy, the IoT service providers better, better not get locked out. 
Just well, think of the again the scalability of how many people would be impacted if a, a Samsung SmartThings platform was locked out at the top. A Wink, a Nest. I mean, there's just so many. Well, especially if it has a ransomware kind of attached to it. It's one thing if your device doesn't work, right? So if you get a message saying, ah, my device doesn't work, you're like, son of a gun, and you get kind of frustrated. But if you mm -hmm. got some sort of message saying, hey, this platform has been compromised, and until Samsung pays us X dollars, you know, all of yeah. your data belongs to us. And then I would say, that's a different level of freak out, because you're like, yep. oh my God, who has access to like, when I'm home, when I'm not home, my security alarm, that is a very, mm -hmm. even if they're attacking the provider and not the consumer directly, that's going to freak people the heck out. As it should. Yeah, as, it, as it should. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, these types of attacks are less about getting the data, although I, I share your concern. I'm sitting here going, I walk up to my house and I can't unlock my front door now. And neither can any of the other 3 million people or however many that have the same lock as me. Yep. I'm yeah. like, I don't know how else to say this, but yep. Yep. <laughs> That's true. Now, you yeah. you do still have a key, so you could use your key. Mm, I don't carry it. <laughs> I have my watch or my phone that has the app. It's a quick set lock, right? It is. Just use a screwdriver. Oh, <laughs> I can't believe you went there. It's true. <laughs> I have a quick set lock, but it's it's pretty easy to break from you don't even need a z-wave screwdriver <laughs> yeah you could just use a manual one uh, <laughs> thanks i'm changing my lock now you're like great stacy <laughs> did you send this to me you did okay so not mocking it locks anymore but this attack is really scary it's spreading very quickly it's part of a new type of attacks just like WannaCry was they call them network-based attacks and we could go into that but we'll we'll stop that to tell you that this is actually a big deal because it's hitting infrastructure, not mm -hmm. just computers. So this attack, Petya, or variants of it, which confusingly is called not Not Petya. <laughs> is, I was like, it's running amok. And the way to stop it, do we have a way to stop it yet? I don't see that we do. You know what? There, there was a report uh, by one security researcher that if you created a read-only file with a certain name, that it would stop it. And I know that one email provider, I think in Germany, has disabled the email address of where you're supposed to send the Bitcoin. But that's a problem because now even if you wanted to pay it, you can't. So that, that doesn't seem like the smartest solution to me. Yeah, that I, I saw that and I was kind of like, huh, you have a good excuse, but if the hacker still doesn't give you what you need, you're still kind of screwed. So that, right. that's a very legal kind of yeah. worldview way to attack this problem. It's a big problem. And once again, it highlights how unready we are to actually move everything online and how the old security models are now being exploited because we haven't adapted them to this mm -hmm. world. So things like, how do you patch stuff? How do you deal with problems when they occur? How do you get people to upgrade to the latest versions of OSs on their computers? Because a lot of these types of attacks are on older versions of OSs. Well, a challenge there is a lot of these older versions of OSs are built into like industrial or even medical systems ATMs. or devices. Yeah. Yep. And yep. the people who manufactured this, they don't support upgrades to right. it necessarily. 
which right. means if you're if you've bought like a million ATMs, you don't want to update those and potentially break all the stuff. You really want your vendors help there. And if the vendor's I, like, I didn't know. I just I just had this conversation with my son who works at Wawa, which is a convenience store chain on the East Coast. And we were discussing two nights ago on the deck. I said, what systems do your point of sale systems take? They have touch screens for ordering at the deli and all that. He's like, oh, it's Windows 95. And I'm Holy like, uh, moly. Uh-huh. That is not supported. <laughs> I said, I said, you know, I mean, if, if I knew what I was doing, I could come in there and, you know, attack these things with a virus. He's like, well, you just have the point of sale system that, that may not be connected to our corporate systems, yada, yada. I'm like, but what if I held them ransom across all 665 stores and you couldn't take orders at your deli? How much would that cost your store? And then all of a sudden he got silent. <laughs> yeah. Not to mention stealing people's credit cards. Well, well, these, you don't pay at those terminals. Okay. I was like, yeah, so oh. In this case, yeah. But okay. fair point. Fair but point. they think they're safe, and they're not. Exactly. And that is kind of, that is where we are today, in that we, this is going to be a giant honking mess until we get all of these old systems updated or out. In I talk to people in the medical industry, and they're like, God, we are like 15 to 20 years out from that, because yeah. both purchasing cycles... Even today, people are still at the board level or the purchasing level for non-tech stuff. So things that they perceive as being non-tech, like even a point of sale system, they're like, oh, do I really want to pay the extra money for security? And the answer is often no. I don't think they look at it. I don't think that's the question they ask themselves. They're like, do we need to upgrade our point of sale system? No, it's working fine. Oh, how much would true. it cost? Yeah. To, how much would it cost to upgrade? You know, $50 million, whatever it might be. Guess what? You could, it could cost you more lost revenue by not doing it, but they're not, you know, from a security standpoint, they're not looking at it that way. These are not the equations that people are making in their heads. Nope. So let's all be terrified and talk about something else like, dun, dun, dun. I have the new Eero routers that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Yay. I have been testing them, but I will admit to not testing them too long because they came while I was in Costa Rica and one does not test routers while one is on vacation. This one doesn't. Other people might. So these <laughs> are the new Beacons and Eero Pro routers and they are more powerful. The Beacon is smaller and plugs in. So it's kind of like the plume. So you're like, oh, I need a little bit more Wi-Fi coverage. Boop. I'm going to plug this in. There's two things I can tell you. One is I could go all around my house. Well, I did go all around my house testing like Netflix streams and that sort of thing, which seemed to be the biggest test I could come up with. I did not run a software like JPerf to test the actual signal strength, signal strengths, megabits per second. And the, I, I did that for a very clear reason. Like I did think about doing it and I was like, you know what? Mm-hmm. Wi-Fi today in many homes when you have a sufficient connection. And I've got a 350 megabit per second connection. So at that point in life, I don't actually care about getting, once I've got like 100, I'm good. Even bad Wi-Fi is good Wi-Fi in your house. Right. So the the real issue is coverage. It's so where can Mm -hmm. I go in my house in experience holes? And I I think honestly, that's how we should start testing Wi-Fi. Because Especially when you're a lot of the reasons people upgrade their Wi-Fi networks is because, you know, you're, you're sticking a, a connected sprinkler in a garage somewhere and a garage has crappy Wi-Fi. And, you know, that sprinkler is only going to need like a 1.5 megabit per second connection. Right. It doesn't need the speed. It needs the ability to communicate. Reliably and consistently. Exactly. So 
that was my thinking in this. You guys can call and tell me that that's stupid. You can just be like, Stacy, you're wrong. And I'll listen to you. So I walked all around my house. Everything worked. I had a challenging area. It's actually where I'm been testing doorbells. So I have this challenging area right outside my back door. So I went out there and I spent some time with some connected doorbells. And those had better Wi-Fi signals as measured from the doorbell app based on the dBs they were getting. So it seems like these actually offer better coverage than my existing, which were the old school Eros. Is this going to work for everyone that's becoming the question with Wi-Fi. And the answer is, I don't know. You really have to install it and see. And that's a, that's kind of a crappy answer. But it's it's a fair answer because everybody's infrastructure is different. Your house, your townhouse, your apartment, your office building. It all depends on the, the layout. It depends on the materials that are used to construct it. So you, you can't say it's going to work for everybody. Nobody can. But you can... Eventually, I don't know if they do it yet, you can add the extra beacon. So if you have really crappy coverage, you're going to be able to buy a beacon and just be like, and plug it in. So the Eero beacon's $149, and it'll ship in July. It also doubles as a nightlight, you guys. Mine nice. is currently up. Mine is actually in the roof, on the roof, I guess, on on our roof in a cabinet. So the nightlight does not really help there. The idea of the nightlight is actually one, so you don't stick it in a cabinet like I did, because that mm, that yeah. makes the signal yeah. depreciate. Depreciate is not the word you usually use to say about signals. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes it the neg- signal worse. Negatively impacts the signal. Thank you, Kevin. But you could put this in your hallway. I actually thought about putting it in my hallway because my hallway is right above those doors where I'm testing those doorbells, and I thought, ooh, this would be a good way to add connectivity there. Eero has also announced that they were going to launch two services. One is a security service and one is a parental control service. Those mm-hmm. were not available on my test app. So mm. I could not test those, but I am actually really eager to test those because for $10 a month, it's something I might actually buy. Yeah. Well, that's it on the Eero. It's time for Kevin and I to say sayonara and for us to take a message from our sponsor and then come back for some really cool tips on how to build and manage connected products. This is a product manager who's built many IoT products. We're going to talk about sustainable business models, how to talk to your engineers, and more. So stay tuned for all of that, and we'll see you next week. Hey, everyone. We are Breaking Into the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is TE Connectivity, and I have Nick Langston, head of business development at TE Connectivity, to talk about the smart kitchen. So let's kick this off with a quick reminder. What does TE Connectivity do? TE Connectivity makes sensors, antennas, and a huge variety of connectors that appear in all manner of devices from consumer electronics to home appliances to aerospace and medical devices. We're here today to talk about how I can get a smart kitchen. What we see happening in the smart kitchen today is device manufacturers are adding sensors that take advantage of increased precision to enable users to make meals with more consistency, with less effort. They're also really focused on using this increased precision in sensing to improve efficiency. We're in the business of manufacturing and supplying the sensors that can get those jobs done for everyone. And when you think about it, there's a lot of different places in the kitchen that are really rather harsh because 
exposed to extremely low temperatures, extremely high temperatures, exposed to a lot of moisture, a lot of motion. It takes a particular skill set to design sensors and connectors and things that can withstand those sorts of environments. Precision sounds really awesome, but it also makes it sound professional. How can the smart kitchen actually help everyone cook? We think about the smart kitchen as being the area in the smart home that really begins to deliver a lot of value to the public early on. This is what's going to hook people on connected home things. Because the kitchen is the place where we really begin our lives at home. It's all about what's cooking, what's going on, how we talk to each other, how we gather as a family. That all happens in the kitchen. And if we can leverage sensing and connectivity with all of the data now available about us as individuals and and what makes humans tick online, then we can leverage that to live healthier and happier lives. For example, if we think about a week when we've just nailed it and everything's gone right for us. We can look back on that week and say, okay, I had healthy meals. I didn't overeat, didn't have a lot of junk food. I had good activity. If you think about a bad week, maybe you say I had too much junk food. I was traveling. I ate a lot of fast food. With the smart kitchen, your appliances may actually be able to know about your current health. They may communicate with your wearable device to know what kind of activity you've had during the day. And they can leverage artificial intelligence to understand what sort of meal you should be eating. Here at TE Connectivity, we want to provide the sensors and the connectivity and even the systems that help make that possible in appliances. And it may look like something like a a wireless power and data transmission system for some new cooking appliance, whether it's a sous vide circulator or a smart coffee machine or a major appliance. Great, Nick. Where can people go to find out more about TE Connectivity? We invite the audience to check us out at te.com slash connected home. everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today I have an awesome guest for you guys. His name is Daniel Elizalde. He is the founder of Tech Product Management. And today we're going to talk about how to introduce your own IoT products to the market or how you should think about that if your company is trying to do this. So Daniel, thanks for coming on the show this week. Thank you so much for having me, Stacey. I'm really excited to be here. I am too. I'm excited you're here because... My gosh, I see a lot of companies saying, hey, we're going to add IoT to the mix. We're going to launch a connected product. And then they do something and it's terrible. So I'm hoping that maybe this conversation will stop a little bit of that from happening. If I'm your boss and I come up to you and I'm like, Daniel, we need some IoT. Is that really the right approach? Yeah, that's a really good point because that's what I see a lot of the companies doing today. They hear that IoT has all this potential and all these opportunities. And then, you know, typically the CEO comes down and says, we need an IoT. And they're really not understanding what it is. And my point has always been that as technology evolves, IoT is just a tool that can help product teams solve the customer's problems in a better, cheaper, faster way. So by understanding what problem you're really trying to solve, then you can analyze if IoT, with all these components and all these benefits, actually is the right solution for you. And once you have that understanding, then you can go through the product management process to understand all the different pieces, how they fit together, if there's a business case, if there's a technological case, et cetera. But it all starts with a problem are you really trying to solve. 
And I've noticed that a lot of companies, particularly startups, they just jump that step and launch into, we're building this. So let's say I've identified the problem. Is it safe to say that there's probably a few more steps once I've identified that problem before I should launch into a connected device? Yes, there's actually a lot of different stages that you can go through to validate whether that problem is, first of all, there's a traditional product approach of whether that problem is worth solving. But then once you figure out that your company has found a problem worth solving and they are well-suited to solve it, which is not the same thing, then you can go into the process of understanding what it would take to do it from an IoT perspective. And that's where I think there's a lot of confusion between companies because IoT is so new and it has so many different components and complexity that even if they're able to identify the problem, the transition from strategy to actual roadmap planning and execution, a lot of things get lost there. All right. So how should I think about this then? Because like for a while, a lot of connected products were coming on the market and they basically were like, you can control XYZ from your phone. And most people were like, that sounds great. And then they were like, no, actually, I don't want to pay three times as much for something like to turn on my crockpot from my phone. How do we get people to think about connectivity and really applying it to the problem they have in a way that's, I guess, useful, makes sense for their business? The way I, I think about it is that this might sound extreme, but a lot of the problems that companies particularly are trying to solve they already have those problems. So companies that are coming up with new problems and therefore products to solve that are the ones that fall into this gap of not being able to get any traction. But let's say that you are a manufacturer that sells a particular type of, let's say, motors. And then your customers, they are wanting to get more value out of those motors because let's say that they are breaking too often and it's costing them money because there's maintenance involved and downtime. So the customer already has that problem and you have been having that problem forever with those customers. So IoT doesn't really open a new problem. What it does is that how can you apply these new technologies to solve that problem in a better way so that you can provide more value to your customer? Because ultimately, they don't care about IoT. And in fact, one thing I always say is that People don't buy IoT, they buy a solution to a problem. Your customer doesn't really care about how you're going to solve it. They care about how you're going to help them improve their bottom line. So it's, it's about, in my opinion, analyzing what problems your company is already solving and how can you enhance that through IoT to bring more value to your customers and differentiate in the market. Okay, so maybe I should think of this as classes of problems that the Internet of Things or adding connectivity can solve. What would those be? To answer that question, I think that one of the challenges that we have with the term IoT is that it's, it's all-encompassing. So anything that connects to the Internet and has you know, a cloud component and the different layers of the IoT technology stack is, in essence, an IoT product. But there's a big difference in the kind of challenges and solutions for healthcare, for consumer products like wearables, to smart buildings, to smart cities, to military, to energy. And so I think that the classes of problems are going to be dependent on the industry that you're serving. If you're going towards, let's say, an uh, industrial manufacturing setting, the challenges that they have, and they've always had, have to do with uptime, throughput of their production lines, reducing costs. So those are the kind of things that you can see solving through this new technology. If you're looking at a consumer aspect, the goal there is convenience, 
is unifying different systems of data to provide some sort of value. So that's the kind of problem that you're going to solve there. In the healthcare, well, that's a highly regulated area. So you're going to be dealing with problems that have to do with ensuring precision of the instrumentation every single time, also removing downtime, things like that. So I think the, the point here is that there is no one killer application for IoT and there's just not one solution. Every sector and every industry and vertical will have their own classes of problems, which you can solve and approach with the corresponding IoT technology. One of the things that I've seen is that a lot of companies skip the different processes of understanding who are their customers and really digging into what their problems are. And so sometimes, even if you're focusing on a specific vertical, let's say smart buildings, and you are creating a product that it's a connected uh, device that controls the air conditioning to save energy. And then you're thinking because buildings need to save energy, therefore this solution is going to work out. But it turns out that when you actually do some user research, it turns out that your main user does not care about serving energy that much. They really cared about you know, their toilets not being running in their building or their security in the building. So all of a sudden you have these companies that come in with ideas that's like, this is going to save you a ton, so therefore you're going to buy it. But they are bouncing back from the customer because the customer is like, yeah, that could be okay if I cared about that problem, but I really care about it. Let's get into this idea of business models, because I think a lot of companies threw out connected products and services without thinking about supporting them over the life of their product. Um, So their business model doesn't necessarily match with the product that they put out there. I think people are realizing that they made some mistakes um, as they're as they're paying for cloud services on a product that they made money off of once, for example. But how do you advise companies to kind of identify their problem and then before they even start building the product to think about how they're going to pay for it or how they're going to charge companies for it? Part of what I what I teach is this framework that I came up with, which I call the IoT Decision Framework, which covers all these different areas in order of understanding your users, understanding your data, your business, et cetera. And the way I set this up is in a way that it's progressive. So once you understand your users, the next thing is understand your data and having a data strategy. Because what I see a lot of companies doing is that they say, we're going to go into IoT, we're going to add sensors to whatever we are selling, and that's it. And when you probe deeper, it's like, so what are you going to do with that data? Uh, We'll figure it out later. And it turns out that later never comes, and in the meantime, they're racking a lot of fees in the cloud for space, for uh, storage, et cetera. So by going through a process that can help you understand all the different components of a solution, right? what data is going to flow, how are you going to monetize that, how long do you intend your system to be on the field, and therefore, you know, how long do you have to be able to get revenue from that customer to make it viable? All those things is what I see is important to do even before you start prototypes or before you raise capital or before you launch your products to market. But you've got to understand your data strategy, what business models support that strategy, and then what technology are you going to use? And then all of those things are interrelated because the technology has to be at a price point that is supported by your business model. And that's where all these things play together. If you add more data, then it's going to cost you more to store it, so therefore you're going to have to charge more. And by being able to understand all these different complexities, then companies will be able to have a more realistic business plan and a more realistic roadmap that actually 
takes you on a path towards profitability as opposed to just a cool technological solution. I'm sitting here looking at your IoT decision framework. And for folks who care, I will put it in the show notes. But you've got the UX side. So and that's actually less about like, UX, it sounds like, well, it is still UX, but it's more about identifying the need of your customer. And then you've got your data stuff. You've got the business model that you're going to work from, the technology. Then you move to security. So A, thank you for having security in there. But B is a lot of people feel like security is something that should be designed in from the beginning. This is obviously, I think, still before you put anything together. But can you talk about like how you think about security and how that kind of plays back with everything that you've talked about that comes before? Yes, that's a very good point. And the reason I put security here after technology is because the way I use this framework is it's a matrix. And so you look at each of those items at each layer of the IoT technology stack. So for example, when you're looking at business, you look at the business implications as a whole, but then also from a device hardware perspective, from a device software perspective, communications perspective, cloud platform and cloud applications. And that's what helps you get a holistic picture. If you continue going down, then you have a technology. So what technology are you gonna to use to solve the business case? And then security comes later because unless you understand what the technology, sorry, you're gonna use, it's really hard to figure out what you're going to secure. Security is all about risk management. And so what I advocate is that you should be able to go through this framework from beginning to end before you start developing anything. So in that sense, it is baked in into your design. And then you have to understand what security you need at the device hardware, at the device software layer, at communications, cloud platform, et cetera. So by going through this framework, you're asking what's the worst that could happen at each of the layers. That's true. And understanding your customer base is important here too, because a medical device is very different from a security standpoint than a consumer thermostat or a Bluetooth radio. And that's why in the framework, what I advocate is starting with UX, which is understand your user. And so if you understand your user, have clear personas for all the different users involved throughout the life cycle, then you can say, you know what? Security, even though we might be in a highly regulated area, let's say energy. Well, security is going to be most important for us at the device hardware because of physical tampering as opposed to the cloud application. And so you make those assessments and you say, my different users care about security in these different layers, and I am comfortable with these levels of risk. Okay. Now, here's the fun part of all of this. This is a really in-depth framework. And I, I think it, it actually is a very nice way of thinking about IoT, which is why I'm talking to you. But Thank you. it's also, this is a very fast moving area. And so how much time should a company take on this? The, the way I designed the framework is that it touches on a lot of things that uh, product teams should already be doing. And the framework is just a way to put everything together. So all teams should be looking at UX. All teams should be looking at data, right? But now it gives you a, a path on how to do it. And when I do workshops or I teach my class at Stanford, within a week or so of working with your team, you can actually learn the framework. And so once you understand the framework and have all those questions, you should be able to fill this up really quickly, like in a week or so, right? If you're spending too much time on this, you're overthinking it. The important thing is to be able to make decisions, and that hence the name so that you understand all the different things and you make decisions on how you're going to progress. And my suggestion is always to go with a minimum viable product. So you're always going to be learning. 
And so put something out there, but at least that has considered all the different things and then iterate on it. And the other thing is that, as you mentioned, because the industry moves so fast, my recommendation is look for market fit before everything else. A lot of companies that are coming from you know, having uh, hardware products and having a lot of experience there, they drive for cost competency really quickly. They want to have the cheapest product or the smallest product in the market as their first try. And I think that is actually putting the, the cart before the horse. Do something even if it's bulky, even if it's in a prototype stage with other types of components from third-party vendors so that you verify that your product gets traction in the market. Once you get traction in the market, then you can naturally start refining your offering to make it faster, cheaper, smaller, etc. Got it. And here's a tough question, because I think a lot of the benefits that connectivity will bring to businesses isn't actually in a physical product. In some cases, it might be a service. And I'm thinking of things like, you know, being able to order a Domino's pizza through my Amazon Echo. And this this feels very physical product oriented, but I'm curious if this can be adapted to just broadly thinking about how connectivity everywhere is going to disrupt all kinds of businesses and thinking about using this even to deliver services or software. Yes, I think that's a great observation. And I think this framework is generic enough that it has all the different components that you're going to need. And then as your roadmap progresses, then you can focus on a specific area. If you think about your example of the Echo, the Echo has all these components. But as you continue to evolve it into, say, now the Echo orders pizza, well, that is just focusing on the device software area in the virtual cognition and the artificial intelligence there, and maybe something in the cloud. So your roadmap can actually have these themes moving forward, and then it just touches some of the parts of the framework, but right? you don't have to do everything every single time. What are some product mistakes that have gone before? So what are some, some ways that people have not followed this and had it bite them? I talk to companies all the time that are in that process. So I think the first one is not understanding who your users are and what problem are you really looking to solve for them. So that is a combination of just not having user centricity, so to speak, and also the technology leading the way. So I think a lot of companies think that IoT is going to open new doors from a technology perspective, and they jump into the technology without really understanding their users. Another common mistake that I've seen is not having a clear data strategy. So the idea is that you can add sensors to things so that you can collect information to add some value. But if you don't have very clear what that value is going to be, it's going to be really hard to justify costs later or changes in your organization or anything else that, that's going to drive business out of that data. Right. So you have to think that ahead. And other couple of areas that I think are often not understood correctly, security, we talked about it. But the other one, which is also part of the framework, is regulations. A lot of companies don't fully take the time to understand what regulations are going to impact their product, and especially if they're going to go to a regulated industry like energy or healthcare. Right? They really need to know what they're getting into, otherwise their product is never going to get adoption or purchase, etc. But this is even true for other types of products. For example, smart buildings. Now you have to deal with building code, which changes in different districts and municipalities, and you have to have all these different things that are completely outside of the technological realm. 
a lot of companies just don't think about that. So my recommendation is, that's why I put it in the framework, think about it and get the right counseling to make sure you understand what the regulations are in the business you're going in and in the area because regulation changes geographically. How do you ask your users what they want, especially when we're kind of in this place where we, it's like your users don't even know what they want yet, right? You give them, you give them what they need, not necessarily what they want. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big misconception and I'm glad you asked that question. And that's why I'm a big proponent of UX as a discipline because there's all this techniques that you can do to observe your users. Your users won't be able to tell you what solution they want, but they can tell you what their problem is. And it is your responsibility as a product company to come up with something that solves that need for them in a way that makes sense. And so there are uh, one of my favorite techniques is to observe your users in the wild, identify who your users are, first of all, right? And then go out there and spend a day with them and interview them and see them, how they interact with their environment and see the problems firsthand. And then as you identify the problems, keep that discovery and research mentality throughout the whole product life cycle. So these are techniques that are very well understood in, in other types of technology, but they need to make it deeper into IoT as well, right? So UX needs to be a part of every development team needs to be part of the toolbox of any product manager so that we can understand our users and then, only then, propose what solution could fit their needs. Got it. All right, Daniel, I feel smarter. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. I've been a fan of the show for some time, so I'm really, really glad to be able to have this conversation with you. Oh, well, you just had it with all of our listeners, so thank you so much. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want more IoT news, you can sign up for my newsletter, Stacy Knows Things, at stacyonIoT.com. We'll see you next week. Music.